Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities, a network of private institutions providing an education that integrates the liberal arts, professional studies, and civic engagement. I'm your host, Sean Creighton. Our podcast speaks with insightful experts about current and future issues affecting higher ed. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest on the NACU podcast is David Staley. David is an associate professor in the Department of History at The Ohio State University, where he also holds courtesy appointment in the Department of Design. David is the author of Historical Imagination and Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education, among a number of other books. He's Honorary Faculty Fellow in Innovation at the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Bay Path University, and was recently named a Fellow at the Center of Science and the Imagination at the Arizona State University. He hosts his own podcast, Voices of Excellence in the Arts and Sciences. And when he's not writing, he has designed and curated both online and physical exhibitions, publishing numerous visual compositions in digital media. David Staley, welcome to the NACU podcast. Thank you very much, Sean. I'm excited to have you here. And uh, for our listeners, why don't we begin by having you tell us a little bit about your background, the essentials, your academic disciplines, your current position, you know, like who are you? David J. Staley. Wow. Uh, I have a very unusual background, I think. I'd like to think that's the case. PhD in, in history, in European history, but uh, I haven't published in European history in over 25 years. I became interested uh, in the mid-90s in uh, the emerging field of digital history and uh, spent a lot of time thinking and writing in that area. Uh, so I'm uh, on faculty at Ohio State, uh, associate professor in the Department of History, but I also have uh, courtesy appointments in the design department and in educational studies. I also spend a fair amount of my time in the future, so I'm identified as a, as a futurist. Uh, so I sometimes like to say I um, can't decide what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and then, like, were you uh, also the director of uh, an institute or center? I was. Up until December 2020, I was uh, the director of uh, Ohio State's uh, Humanities Institute, uh, which I did for four years. But prior to that, I was uh, director of the Goldberg Center in the History Department. So I, I do have some administrative background as well to consider. Yeah, yeah that's, what I, that's what I thought. And that's a, obviously, it's a big university, a little different, mm. different profile than the, our campuses. But uh, we're not going to talk about that today. I mean, you've written a number of books, and the one I sort of want to dive into is uh, the one that came out in 2019, uh, Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education. And obviously, it's, you know, it's a nonfiction book about higher education innovation, but there's just this blend of nonfiction and yet almost like a fiction story as you really <laughs> tap into your imagination around different types of institutions in terms of speculative design. And so it's kind of fun uh, opportunity to, to think about the future. And, you know, when you, when you wrote that book, was there a particular audience in mind? And, and did it turn out that was who bought the book? So I don't know if I had a, a particular sort of reader in mind, but I'd say uh, university presidents, university leaders, and maybe sort of tangentially and 
without giving it much thought ahead of time, those who set sort of education policy, uh, especially in state legislatures, let's say, but also maybe boards of trustee. And I think academics too. I think people that, that work in what we call the philosophy of higher education. I think I had all those uh, sorts of uh, audiences in mind. But I think largely it was those who sort of set policy or, or sort of lead institutions. And I think for the most part, that's who's uh, read the book. I tend to get reactions uh, when I get them from uh, provosts and presidents, uh, that sort of level. And uh, I suppose another audience uh, that I had, I had hoped for, uh, I guess, would uh, be educational entrepreneurs, uh, whoever that might be. Mm-hmm. Were there any surprises? You know, did you receive an email or a call from somebody that uh, you didn't expect? And I mean, you know, like, like Elon Musk or, 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 or some real mega tech innovator or, you know, entrepreneur or, you know, somebody like Michael Crow or, or some other leading thinker in in the field? I think the biggest and maybe most pleasant surprise is that I was contacted by a venture capitalist who, like you, read the book and and was really interested by it. I had hoped, maybe in the back of my mind, that someone like an Elon Musk would uh, would be interested in the book, but very fortunate to have been reached out to by this venture capitalist. And in fact, he and I are uh, co-authoring a book right now. We were just in the, uh, in the, in the final stages uh, about ready to send off for, for page proofs. Oh, that's great. Uh, about innovation in higher education. Oh, that's exciting. Cause you know, later on, I was going to ask you, what are you thinking writing about? So maybe we can even hear a little bit more about that. Staying focused on alternate universities. You know, how influential do you think the book's been as uh, universities, kind of think about their future and position themselves and really are challenged to innovate more than ever. I think influential, and maybe that's a conceit, but I, I've been told that many people are reading it. I suppose it, it comes down to what we mean by influential and what that influence means. So I think I've definitely started a number of conversations around what we mean by innovation in higher education, but also about what universities can become especially as they start thinking strategically about their missions and about how they're going to differentiate themselves in an increasingly crowded marketplace. And so I think we definitely started the conversation around that. Now, whether or not that's meant existing institutions are redesigning themselves based around the ideas I explore in the book, I've not seen that yet. And frankly, because I think that's a really challenging proposition for a lot of institutions. I mean, to really redesign or to remake themselves, that's a real challenge, as I'm sure you're aware, Sean. Yeah, it seems like the the examples that you give, there are certainly elements within all of them that could be, I don't know, integrated into parts of the university versus a university completely transforming itself into one of the types of the models. And, and what I also see in your book is a real challenge to be innovative and to be imaginative in your thinking. Yes, well, I definitely uh, play up the idea of imagination and to take it seriously. Don't just see it as, you know, sort of child's play or the, you know, the activity of a poet or a dreamer, but that university leaders especially uh, should embrace imagination in their strategic thinking. The other intention is to think about what makes your institution distinctive, because I really do think that this is going to be uh, the competitive advantage for institutions going forward. Part of what I write about in the book is for various reasons, and some of it is as much sort of institutional as, as much as anything, 
but institutions want to benchmark and copy every other institution. And that gets expressed in lots of different ways. There's lots of reasons for it. But one effect of this is that institutions, they offer the same degree programs and they use the same sort of marketing. Uh, and I think that at least for some institutions, that is not a winning strategy going forward. And it will be the way in which not just simply distinct programs, but that the institution itself is a very distinctive, very different kind of experience. That that's what's being sold to uh, prospective students. The book was written in 2019, which is still relatively a recent book, I would say. And, uh, but it was released before the pandemic. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and if, if you were to, you know, kind of take this moment and reflect a little bit on you know, on that, the fact that we have had a pandemic since the book came out. And uh, does that influence any of your thinking and about the future of higher ed? And, and even thinking about some of the designs in the book that maybe are even more relevant today. I'm, I'm not saying we're out of a pandemic, but we're still <laughs> living in it. There was at least a couple of models that during the pandemic would seem highly impractical. So one of the models I describe in my book is is something called Nomad university. And maybe this gives a flavor of the kinds of innovations that I write about in the book. But this is a university without a physical campus. And I don't mean like, you know, a virtual campus. I mean, uh, the location of classes moves around the globe. And I compare it to having a number of gap year experiences, piecing together maybe eight or 10 gap year experiences as a college experience. And so you're, you're going around the globe engaged in projects in different parts of the world, and you're learning about what it means to live in a different place and to interact with people from a different culture while you're also engaged in a project, whatever, whatever that might be. Uh, again, like a gap year. And, there, and there's all sorts of evidence to suggest that those students who, who take a gap year come to university you know, better prepared, more mature, and so the thinking behind Nomad University is why not uh, take those benefits and sort of amp them up and turn that into a college experience? Well, during the pandemic, that, you know, traveling around the globe seemed to be a uh, maybe not the best approach to use. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I think if the pandemic has sort of taught anything, and I think that this was related maybe to one of my reasons for writing the book, is prior to the pandemic, there was a belief, there was an assumption that all higher education was moving online. This was going to be the disruption that, to higher education that we've seen in other industries. And it's been inevitable, and many have been sort of predicting this for at least the last two decades, that, uh, that the future of universities were online. And indeed, uh, we come to the pandemic, and most of us were forced to hold our classes over Zoom or in other, some other sort of online format. And there were those that were suggesting, well, there it was. That was the final push that higher education needed to go sort of fully online. But what we've also seen during the pandemic is that students have rejected online, the online experience, uh, as much as they've embraced it. And I actually uh, wondered if that might not be the case, that students would uh, have a kind of Zoom fatigue, as it were. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I had, a, I had a student say to me last spring when we were, you know, in the midst of a year of these uh, sorts of online classes, uh, he said something to the effect of, I don't feel like I attend the Ohio State University. Mm -hmm. In other words, having this class over Zoom, I could, you know, I could, I could do this anywhere. What is it that makes uh, an Ohio State experience different? 
and indeed, I wrote the book in part to sort of push back against the idea that the only innovation that we're going to see in higher education is the move to online. That was one of the explicit reasons for writing it, to sort of say, how else can we think about innovation that doesn't necessarily involve moving classes online? And so I think in that regard, uh, the models that I suggest are maybe even more relevant uh, post-pandemic. Yeah, that is interesting because you're right. There isn't a real focus in your models that involve online. There's certain institutions, you know, depending on who I'm hanging out with, if I kind of talk about some of them, and you talked about the Nomad one, I just wanted to mention like the Institute for Advanced Play. Oh, like, splendid. When I mentioned that, even in describing it in a sentence, people are like, I want to go to that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the university I wanted to go to. You know, that's and so yeah, it's interesting to see how people react to the to these uh, these speculative designs and and in the book they're sort of like standalone concepts, but there are elements that can be incorporated and are part of the today's university experience, like play. I mean, and doing that in a particular setting in a classroom and really challenging ourselves around problem solving. When I imagine the Institute for Advanced Play. Uh, I really am imagining an institution that places play as the highest achievement, the highest goal, even above knowledge, I say. And indeed, uh, I think that there are uh, relatively few places or institutions in modern life where adults especially are given the, the freedom and the opportunity to play. And there's all sorts of evidence that points to the cognitive necessity of play and yet it's something that as adults, we tend to diminish in our lives. We tend to see it as you know, frivolous or unproductive or certainly the sort of thing that children engage in. There's all sorts of reasons to believe that play is, is necessary for our cognitive development, but it's also valuable for uh, innovation, for instance, creativity. And so, yeah, I suppose there are ways in which we incorporate play, but not to the degree that I'm talking about in this where play is not something that's tangential to a university experience, but is central to what it means to go to university, to engage in, in, in a university experience. If we switch to the micro college for a minute. Ah, splendid. Yeah. So at NACU, we work with 25 plus institutions within the network. And could they be leveraged in a way where they create a micro college experience, you know, and the student has the opportunity to work with a faculty member at each institution. You know, I'm trying to like, pull out yes. some elements of what you're designing and to see how to leverage that around an existing structure. I think that's absolutely the case. So uh, for listeners that, uh, that haven't read the book, a micro college is the idea that a college could uh, consist of 20 students and one faculty member, not a class, it's a college. And I mean, if that sounds uh, quixotic, uh, there's actually an institution that's been around for over a century, uh, Deep Springs College in California that's about that size. In fact, it was, it was sort of what I modeled the idea of micro-college on. So there's 27 students and I think three faculty at Deep Springs College. And what I imagined there was a series of these. There wouldn't be just one micro-college, there would be lots of micro-colleges. But again, it's the idea of sort of education at human scale. And I could very much see uh, an existing institution set up a number of these micro-colleges underneath the umbrella of their institution, almost in the way that we think of Oxford and Cambridge as constituent colleges. You could have sort of constituent micro-colleges as part of an existing institution. 
And again, the idea here is a kind of human scale uh, education uh, of the kind that we, we, we know that students, uh, when they express it, they express a preference for that sort of one-on-one -on -one engagement or that sort of, dare I use the word, intimate sort of engagement. Uh, so I do think uh, an existing institution could engage that. I also think it's a way of thinking about the value of what we once maybe called small liberal arts colleges, that small might actually be a competitive advantage going forward. Now, small doesn't have to be 20 students in one faculty, but small could be maybe on the order of hundreds of students, dozen faculty. And I know that uh, there's been a recent article in the Chronicle that's talked about, you know, this as a strategy for some colleges, especially as we're facing a time of diminishing enrollments. Maybe a college that has 500 students is at a competitive advantage, especially as uh, you seek out students that want that sort of intimate sort of experience. So I actually think the idea of micro college is something that has a lot of legs. I want to just switch here a little bit. We We've had uh, Brian Alexander on our oh, podcast. Yes. Yeah, you know, he's he's a futurist. He looks like a futurist. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think of yourself as a futurist? Yes, I uh, I think of myself as a, as a futurist. I've used that term for about a decade, although I, I I no longer have it. I had a I actually had a consulting practice doing futuring with organizations. Although uh, I, I use the term strategic foresight with them because uh, in some ways, futurist is a loaded or a weighted term uh, in a couple of ways. So uh, I think that uh, especially in the 1970s, futurists had a reputation of being maybe flighty or something like that. Uh, and it wasn't seen as a actual profession. I think that attitude has changed, but I think it's also freighted the word futurist with some unpleasant connotations. Uh, and there are some also that would that sort of associate futurists with the Italian futurists of the early 20th century, the sort of fascist artists, as it were. So I'm sometimes careful when I say uh, futurist, but all that means is that I'm someone who's interested in the future. I'm interested in thinking about and anticipating what's next. You know, what advice do you give to higher education leaders when they when they call you saying, David, help me. <laughs> what, what, what's the future look like? What can I do? These are the challenges I have. David, help me. What do you, what do you tell them? To uh, don't be afraid to engage your imagination. So what I mean by that is um, a lot of job descriptions, you know, the search firms say that they are looking for entrepreneurial leaders or visionary leaders or something, that, that sort of language like that. And I actually think that that's, in fact, what board of trustees are not looking for, even though they say it in the job search literature. What they're really looking for is someone who will uh, manage enrollment management and will keep the lights on and will keep the alumni happy. And maybe that's a caricature, but uh, I also think there's probably uh, more than a kernel of truth to that. And what I really, what, what I've been telling higher education leaders is that I think what this moment especially requires is truly imaginative, entrepreneurial, visionary leaders. Those who are going to be uh, change leaders and not just simply uh, those who are going to, as I say, keep the lights on. My colleague, Stephen Lemkul draws the distinction between change leaders and custodial leaders. I like that. I like the distinctions you're making. 
So Stephen Lemkul has written uh, more eloquently than I mm -hmm. about it. And so may I plug his book, uh, Campus with Purpose, which is a really, really fine book. I guess speaking of books, one just came out, uh, The Great Upheaval, and, you know, with regard to higher education. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, the evidence liberal arts needs. Great book. And then going back even further, as you mentioned, you know, there's been predictions about the, the transformation of higher ed and, and how so many schools are going to close. And all of these things are still swirling around out there in the, the great narrative around higher ed. And we see mergers and acquisitions happening. They've been happening for a while. But do you expect a, a significant ramp up as we move forward uh, in mergers and acquisitions of, of colleges. I do. And I think that some of this will be in reaction to the threat of colleges closing. I think that there are, there, there are too many alumni, there are too many boards of trustees that don't want to go that route, that see that as the absolute last ditch effort. And so I, I think because of that, we will see more mergers and acquisitions, and especially the A part of that. I think we're going to start to see more acquisitions. Larger institutions, I'll use my own as a case, although I don't necessarily see this happening in, in Ohio, but an institution like Ohio State might get into the business of uh, acquiring smaller colleges uh, that maybe are resource challenged and in a sense uh, establish uh, more regional campuses under the Ohio State brand, under the Ohio State umbrella. Again, I, uh, I, I see no evidence that this is what senior leadership, I'm not speaking for senior leadership at Ohio State, but I could very well see larger institutions sort of expand their physical presence by acquiring uh, institutions, smaller, maybe more troubled institutions. Mm. I really do see that as a very plausible future. Well, what else have you been thinking about, writing about? I mentioned uh, that I'm co-writing uh, a book right now with uh, my colleague who's a venture capitalist. And the, the title of the book is uh, A College in Any Town. And the subtitle is uh, Knowledge Enterprises as Talent Magnets. And essentially what we're arguing is that one of the effects of the pandemic was the rather dramatic rise in remote work, such that uh, there, there are many, especially uh, uh, tech companies, that are assuming that future hires are going to be made of people who aren't actually going to reside in uh, the Bay Area. They can work from anywhere, and especially a place that they want to be, either because it has a you know a quality of life that they are seeking, affordable housing, uh, lower cost of living. But we're imagining a uh, a real demographic shift that's going to come because of the pandemic. And we think this is a moment for colleges and universities and the cities and towns in which they reside to sort of rethink their strategies, to sort of revamp their economic development strategies around what we're calling talent magnets or a talent magnet strategy. How do you draw these knowledge workers to your town? And we think that the placement, the location of a college or university is one way to draw those workers in. And uh, so what we describe in the book is ways in which cities and towns will have to reimagine uh, their relationship to a college or university, but also the colleges and universities will have to rethink their mission and purpose, especially around the idea of economic development and talent attraction. And we actually uh, make the argument that this could be a real boon to some places uh, that maybe have felt left behind 
in the digital economy or in the expansion of the tech economy. Uh, and so in many ways, it's a sort of a hopeful, a hopeful book for places uh, to rethink their, their economic strategies. When uh, I'm looking forward to reading that, when, when does it come out? <laughs> uh, I'm assuming uh, sometime this fall, Johns Hopkins University Press again. Oh, that's terrific. Can't wait to, um, to read that. It's been incredible talking to you here and, and listening to your, your thoughts. And I wondered, you know, who have been some of your influences over the years? I think uh, the first uh, great influence was my PhD advisor, Alan Byershen. Happy to happy to name him. I began this conversation by saying uh, I I can't decide what I want to be when I grow up, and uh, some of that has to do with Alan's uh, influence. Uh, so unlike uh, many other PhD advisors, uh, Alan was a polymath or is a polymath, and encouraged us, I think, to be polymaths to not live so deeply in your narrow academic specialization, and encouraged us to read and think more broadly in other sorts of disciplines. And so he gave me that permission. And I think that that's been very influential in my own sort of approach. I'm trained as an historian, but as I say, I teach in design and I spend time in the future and I've you know, written on higher education strategy. And for that, I'm really grateful for that foundation that Alan provided. The book, uh, Alternative Universities, was influenced, I think, uh, by Ronald Barnett, who has created the field of philosophy of higher education. I think at the end of the day, that's what my book is about. And so I think in that way, uh, he's been uh, really influential. Well, David, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And I can't wait to read your works that are coming out and just staying in touch as you continue to have a, a, an important, significant impact on how we think about the future of higher education. Thank you very much, Sean. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the NACU podcast. As president of the New American Colleges and Universities, I'm honored to work with our network of innovative campuses and champion the belief that a comprehensive liberal, professional, and civic education is essential to the future of our world. To learn more about the NACU campuses, visit nacu.edu.com.